guys, welcome to this edition of the Everyman Livestream. My name is Jeremy and I will be your host today. Hey, you know what? If you're anything like me, uh, you probably don't use words that we would call like strong words with people that you interact day to day. I mean, for me, most of my day to day conversations are with friends and family that don't really require me to be that serious or raise my voice to get someone's attention. But sometimes there are some issues and there are some situations where I will need to raise my tone or I'll have to be more serious or there are words I'll have to use more intentionally if the topic of discussion calls for it. Now think about if you were a guide and you were taking a team on a challenge to climb Mount Everest. Now it's a very serious challenge. It requires a very serious conversation because there are very serious consequences if you're not made aware of the realities that you're gonna face on that mountain. And that's the idea behind this exciting new series we're calling the red letter warnings. Now these are statements by Jesus to his men that have real consequences for your relationship with God. Now these are truths that reflect his strong love and concern for us. But most importantly, the red letter warnings require a response that will change your relationship with Christ. Now the Everyman team is praying that you are going to be blessed and challenged and transformed as we encounter Jesus' words. Now, before we start part one, I'd like for you to take a second and share this live stream with your friends who would be blessed by this study in God's word. Now, let's go live to Crossline Church in Laguna Hills, California, and join men's expert and pastor Kenny Luck for part one of the Red Letter Warnings. Good morning, men. If you have a Bible, you want to mark a spot in Matthew chapter 7. We are starting a new series. It's called The Red Letter Warnings, but I want to start uh, talking about um, one of the challenges on planet Earth that, that men have been uh, trying to conquer uh, ever since they've seen it. It's Mount Everest. All right. Anybody know the first person to summit Mount Everest? Edmund Hillary. Very good. Very good. But what people don't know is that he would have never got there unless he had a guide. All right, his guide was Tenzing Norgay. Yeah. And, uh, and, and when, you, when you think about Mount Everest, you think, okay, let's see, that's a pretty dangerous thing to do. Since 1924, 295 people have died attempting to summit uh, Mount Everest. 200 of those bodies are up there. So imagine you're, you're thinking, hey, man, I want to climb Mount Everest. <laughs> uh, but every modern climber um, and every guide today... Uh, knows that there's some things that you need to know because on Mount Everest, uh, there are avalanches, there are crevasses, right, that you can fall into, uh, dehydration, exhaustion, oxygen, brain issues, uh, wind freeze, frostbite, pneumonia, oxygen supply. Uh, and then here's another thing they warn you about. You might witness someone die. And what do you do? You know, how do you react? How, how do you uh, respond? And uh, they've come up with a list of, uh, of six warnings when you climb Mount Everest, and here they are. The first one is, it's wiser to fail than die, right? So a lot of climbers have turned around three, four, five times after preparing for an entire year. They turn around, and you got to be ready to turn around uh, the other one, the second one is respect the weather. 
right? They can, you can have hurricanes on Mount Everest. It's its own weather ecosystem. Third, you might imagine this would be true. Use the ropes. Use the ropes. Don't, don't freewheel. Hydrate, number four. Number five, know your gear. And number six, know the snow. Because you can stick a, a, a pickaxe or a pole into something and start an avalanche. Um, so for this journey, that's what you need to know before you go. And uh, on the, uh, I can just imagine sitting you know, in an orientation uh, with a guide and him going over those things. And you think we'd all be leaning in a little bit, right? Especially based on the fact that there's, there's some consequences if you don't listen. Uh, the reason why I share that story is, is that we can have uh, just conversations like this and we're sharing thoughts, right? Uh, then we can kick it up a notch and I can make a recommendation and I can say, well, if I were you, you know, you might want to consider this. But then there's this kind of another level where I issue an, a, a warning, where there's, this is a truth, this is a reality, uh, that if you don't listen, it has big uh, repercussions. And warnings use words that rise to an ultimate level. Everybody say ultimate level. Ultimate, ultimate level. level. Yeah. When you issue a warning, it's, it's you're raising the bar. It's not a conversation. We're not sharing thoughts. It's not a recommendation of, hey, you know, you should consider, you might want to do this. No, a warning has unequivocal words in it like never and nothing and never do this, that type of thing. And in this series, the red letter warnings, we're going to look at some situations and issues where Jesus took words to an ultimate level. Jesus gave sermons. Jesus told stories. Jesus gave us truths. Jesus gave us promises. Jesus gave us commands. And Jesus speaks in the language of warnings many times. In fact, I have one right here to start off this new series from Matthew chapter 7. Uh, where he says this, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Let's finish it together. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a... So those are words of warning. Those are words where Jesus is saying, um, you know, you... You listen to what I say and you put into practice what I say, this is, this is what's going to happen. You don't listen to what I say, you don't put into practice what I say, this is what's going to happen. And so when strong words are used, write this down, strong consequences are at stake. And I'm just borrowing this little session with Jesus right here because the consequences are your life's going to fall apart or your life's going to be solid. Fall apart. Are solid. Your choice. All right, so those are the strong consequences uh, at stake. When strong words are used, secondly, love is present. Care is present. Love is present, right? Jesus loving you and having your best interest in mind doesn't want your life to fall apart when the pressure comes. You know, what's great about this little vignette is that it tells us that Pressure is going to be here. Pressure is going to come. It's just, how are you going to handle the pressure? You can handle the pressure uh, independently. 
or you can handle the pressures of life with the wisdom of Jesus and with his presence. And he shares that with you because he shares this warning because his love is present. Third, strong truth is known. Strong truth is known. You ever known something to be a fact and before someone else gets into the same situation you're in, you go, hey, this is what you got to know because you've been there. Or you have tribal knowledge. You have that tribal knowledge. It's like, hey, don't do this. Do do this. The one who knows is the one who is confident, the one who is absolute, right? Because they know the truth. So Jesus, knowing the truth about how to build your life, right? Because in the Bible, when it's talking about the house, it's talking about your life, all right? And having a foundation. And Jesus is saying, hear my words, put them into practice, solid foundation, because the pressure is going to come and press in on your house and on your life, and either your house will collapse under that pressure, and you'll hurt yourself, and you'll hurt other people, or you'll stand, and it will be solid. Lastly, when strong words are used, a strong response is required. A strong response is required. I mean, you actually have to hear the words, you have to internalize the words, and then you have to apply the words. Everybody say that with me. Hear the words, internalize the words, apply the words. That's what Jesus is saying. And so this is a red letter warning. You know, it's, it's black and white on your notes, but in my Bible, the words are in red, right? Now, the risk of giving a warning to someone is that the warning will go unheeded. That's the risk of giving a warning. But you're giving it. Why? Because there's, there's a lot at stake. You love that person. You know the truth. And you're hoping that, that they'll respond. But the risk of giving a warning is that it'll go unheeded. Right? Look at what it says in Ecclesiastes 4.13. Let's read that together. Ready? Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. Yeah. You see, hearing is a start, but heeding brings the payoff. It's one thing. I mean, any parent can tell you that. <laughs> it's, it's, we call it an I told you so, right? It's like, hey, I gave you that warning. And then you decided to hear it, but not heed it. And then you bloodied your nose again. I told you so, right? And so in this series, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about kind of the value of, 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 of being warned, right, by God himself. And then we're going to look at the warning. What, what's he talking about here? What's the warning about? And then we're going to look at the why. So let's look at the first warning of Jesus as it relates to your walk with him. And it's the warning against self-sufficiency, right? And just to set this up, you know, when you know Jesus, you can live self-sufficiently or God-dependently, right? I mean, that's how he sets it up. That's how he positions himself. And he does it in John chapter 15. And let me just put a little context on this. This is like two-minute warning. This is the last huddle. This is just like, all right, guys, come on in. John 15, 16, 17. It's like, I'm going. You're staying. Here's what you need to know. Here's how this is going to work. When I'm, when I'm not with you physically, here's how it's going to work spiritually. And so we can just kind of imagine everybody coming in, you know, and Jesus saying these words, John 15, 5. Let's read it together. Ready? I am the vine, 
you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What's the strong word there? Nothing. Now, that's an ultimate word. That rises to an ultimate level. And he goes, you know, when it comes down to your relationship with me, um, if you're cut off from me, you can do nothing. You, the, the branch can't bear fruit unless it's abiding in the vine, right? And that's a challenge, isn't it? Amen? It's a challenge to stay connected to God, especially in the pressure, right? And to not be self-sufficient and prideful, but to be humble and God-dependent. And really, that's the spiritual battle. That is the spiritual battle. Am I going to be prideful and self-sufficient, or am I going to be humble and God-dependent? And the warning here with Jesus is, I'm the vine, you're the branch. All the power, all the life, all the capacity comes from me. And if you abide in me, if you stay connected to me, you can do some things, but if you, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's unequivocal. And every time I read that verse, and I've read it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, man, it's an ultimate, it's an ultimate statement about how life with Christ works. So let's talk about self-sufficiency for a second. Why does Jesus say, apart from me, you can do nothing? All right, number one, self-sufficiency is idolatry. That's a big word. Self-sufficiency is idolatry. It's like, what's idolatry, Kenny? It's when you make God out of someone or something else that's not God. We have a lot of idols in our culture, right? Money's an idol. We serve money. We think money's the answer. We look to money to give us things that only God can give us. Fulfillment, meaning, purpose, status, position, power. That's just one example, all right? Money can become an idol. You can make it an idol because your identity and your energy and expression as a person is tied intimately to money, all right? Self-importance, all right? Visibility, narcissism, that's an idol, all right? I'm here and you're here. It's power, control, those types of things, all right? So in our culture, we make gods out of things that aren't gods. And in the Bible, uh, one of my favorite pictures of this with, related to a man is King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. Right? I'll give you a little context before we read the passage. So this guy is, you know, the king of Babylon. Okay? He's got a, lot of, got a lot of power, got a lot of position, got a lot of possession. And he's taking it into himself that... He's the author of his own success, right? And so he has this disturbing dream, and he goes to his pagan uh, magicians. I don't know, maybe he had some pagan musicians. Uh, pagan magicians, uh, his, his astrologers, his counselors, and he goes, man, I'm really disturbed. This is bugging me. I'm not sleeping. What does it mean? I had this dream. There's a big tree. It's cut down to a stump. What's going on? And there's a man of God, Daniel, who's captive in Babylon, and they say, hey, we know a guy who can tell you the meaning of the dream. And Daniel says, you know, please be pleased, O king, to, to hear my advice. That tree is you until you acknowledge the king of heaven. And your, your tree, your life, is going to get cut down, and the stump's going to remain, and the roots are going to remain, you're going to remain, until you acknowledge the king of heaven, and that all power comes from him. And so 
we read, pick up the story in Daniel 4, verse 28. It says, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. So 12 months later, after that conversation, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this great, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power? And for the glory of my majesty, even as the words were on his lips, a voice, from, a voice came from heaven. This is what was, is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live, in, live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge, let's finish it together, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. This is, this is a strong warning for anyone in a position of influence. You're in that position of influence, you're in that job, whether it's you're the head of your family or you're the head of your company. If you have influence, power, resources, you need to know where that came from. And, and King Nebuchadnezzar forgot that, right? And what's, what we learn from this picture uh, is that Nebuchadnezzar was self-sufficient. What does it look like? He was prideful. Pride births self-sufficiency, and pride exalts man above God. Or like I like to say, pride always gives birth to stupidity. Okay? So self-sufficiency is idolatry. And this is the message of Scripture. It's always putting God in His rightful place. He's God, big G. And He's saying, don't try, you know, little G, God, yourself, to act like big G. Uh, here's one example in Isaiah 29, 16. Uh, let's read that together. You turn things upside down, as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? And isn't that the message of pride? I know better. Yeah, God, I hear what you're saying, but I know better. Right? And then what do you do when you say that? You make yourself out to be God. So anytime you give God the Heisman and just say, yeah, I hear what you're saying, or, uh, but... You know, on this one, I know better, or I know how to meet my needs better. What you're saying is, you can take the bench, God, because I'm taking your place. Self-sufficiency is idolatry. Secondly, self-sufficiency reflects my maturity. In the Bible, especially in the book of Proverbs, it talks about the way of fools and the way of the wise, right? Look at what it says about the way of the fool, Proverbs 12, 15. Let's read it together. Ready? The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice, right? <laughs> fools are self-sufficient when there's other people and ways to be wiser, right? Their reference point is their selves. Circle seems right to them. You ever made a foolish decision where your way seemed right to you? And you didn't ask anybody for advice. You didn't talk to God. You just plowed forward. You didn't want to consult anybody. You were a single source, non-collaborative leader, right? And you went ahead with your decision. But it seems right to them. You know, in another proverb, it says, you know, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death, 
So there's a lot of self-convincing that we do, right? And isn't that the battle when it says the way of fools? Isn't the spiritual life a battle of ways? There's my way and there's God's way. And when we're self-sufficient, we bag God's way for my way, right? And then we move forward and then we act like a fool, right? When God's smarter, all right? God loves me and God has my best interest in mind, all right? And we just say no to that and we say yes to our way, all right? In the Bible, it talks about uh, the source of our immaturity, all right? Let's read 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 2 together. Ready? Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. Circle on the top line, live by the Spirit. He's talking to believers, and he's saying a believer is dependent upon God. A believer depends on the Spirit of Christ. But he's going, you know what? I can't talk to you that way because you're not living by the Spirit. You're not depending on God. And he says, but as people who are still what? Worldly, right. They're worldly, mere infants in Christ. You see how there's a connection to when you're God-dependent and your maturity to when you're looking out in culture for your wisdom and staying immature. So when I'm acting worldly, I'm acting immaturely. Well, what does the world put out there? You know, just turn on your TV. You know, indulge, impress, increase. Say those together. Indulge, impress, increase. Right. It's hedonism. It's narcissism. It's materialism. Right. They're just telling you, you know, get more stuff. Be more important, be more visible, be more famous, right? You know, and gratify yourself. Self-importance, self-gratification, self-preservation. That's what culture is teaching you. Do you know that if you pay heed to that call, you're going to stay a boy because you're going to love stuff more than people, all right? You're going to make it all about you. And who? everybody loves to be with someone where it's all about them, don't they? No, they don't right? And then you're going to be all about getting your own needs met. You're going to be a self-gratifier, right? That takes no maturity whatsoever, but it does take character and maturity. And you see, that's the spiritual battle. You see the spiritual battle? Like Satan wants to keep you immature because you know who the author of indulge, impress, increase is? It's the devil, right? Anytime you see an ism philosophically, it's demonic because it's an identity and values and behaviors outside of God, if I'm a materialist, I love stuff, right? More than anything. That's what I'm about. And that keeps me immature because then I don't know how to do relationships, all right? And then Satan can destroy my family or my relationships. See how he's really invested in all that? But self-sufficiency reflects my immaturity, right? I mean, guys, any of you guys who are dads or parents or, or even sons who, you know, have parents, when you're young, you know, and you try to be self-sufficient. I mean, it starts early when they're toddlers and they try to let go of your hand, right? You're walking with him, you're holding the hand, and the dad has to squeeze the hand tight. And it's just like, well, if I let it go, it's like, hey, you're two years old. Okay, you can walk, but what's your plan after you break away from me, right? So it's in us, because of the sin nature, to be self-sufficient, 
to have autonomy, to control our own destiny. But that reflects our, our immaturity. All right, number three, self-sufficiency kills humility. And you might have guessed that already because if self-sufficiency is birthed from pride, all right, then if you're acting self-sufficient, you're not acting humble. There's no such thing as a humble, self-sufficient man, right? And in the Bible, it talks a lot about our relationship with God and humility and God dependency or the alternative, pride and self-sufficiency. In Deuteronomy 8, it's a great passage of scripture because it talks about prospering when we prosper, you know? And God's talking to his people and he's saying, hey, I'm gonna bring you into a land where there's vineyards you didn't plant, houses you didn't build, and you're gonna step into this land and I've provided it all for you. And then he issues a warning. It says this, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, let's finish it together, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery." What does self-sufficiency look like? Just forget the Lord. You just forget him. He's out of sight, out of mind. I got what I need. I got my supply. I got my stuff. I got my house. I got my gas in my car. I got my portfolio. I got, I got food in the fridge. I got, you ever notice that? When all of your needs are met, how that's a challenge to remember the Lord and in your comfort, but then in our desperation, we're like, God help us, <laughs> right? And this is the spiritual battle. But what does self-sufficiency look like? It, it looks like forgetting the Lord. What does forgetting the Lord look like? Not seeking his will, not seeking his wisdom, not seeking his power to make it through this day, not seeking his plan, right? It looks like pride and self-sufficiency versus humility and God dependency. Right? If you flip your notes over in Zechariah 2.3, talks about God dependency. Let's read that together. Ready? Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Getting this connection? Right? There's pride and humility, and there's self-sufficiency and God dependency. I am the vine, and you're the branch. And apart from me, you can do nothing, right? Let's look at the next consequence of self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency next limits my ability. Limits my ability. When we act self-sufficiently, apart from God, it's like kicking the best player off your team, right? It's like, you know, Whoever, it's like, it's like the Lakers, you know, showing up to play the Rockets and going, the coach just going, you know what, we don't need LeBron and Anthony Davis to win this game, all right? And that's literally, I mean, we laugh at that. That would, be, that would be insane to do, but that's what we do with God. We're just like, you know what, God, I know you, you know more than me, do, I do. I know you're everywhere. I know you created me. I'm created by you, for you. I'm coming to you. You have great advice, you show me how to do life. But you know what? 
you're going to take a seat on this one, right? And you limit your ability. Look at what Jesus says. This is the passage right before, apart from me, you can do nothing. And Jesus stresses this, right? Let's read it together. Ready? I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. What's so interesting is that Jesus says, you can be connected and unfruitful. You can be a branch that's connected and unfruitful. Like, I know Jesus, but I don't depend on Jesus. I know God, but I don't depend on God. And you're not bearing fruit. And when the Bible talks about fruit, what, what is it talking about? Fruit reflects the source, right? Banana trees make... Okay, right. That's how we know it's a banana tree, because the fruit reflects the source of the tree, right? What's the fruit that God's looking for? Well, in the Bible, when you read the Bible, he's looking for you to have the family resemblance. He's looking for righteousness. He's looking for compassion. He's looking for mercy. He's looking for justice. He's looking to see if you reflect the source, if you reflect him. And there are people who say they're connected to God, but they bear no fruit. Why? Because they're self-sufficient, right? And they're limiting their abilities. Um, You know, and one of the best things that we can depend on in order to increase our abilities and increase the outcomes of our lives is God's word. Look at what God says to Joshua In Joshua chapter one, let's read it together. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it then you will be prosperous and successful. So if we were to take this spiritual MRI right here and put ourselves underneath it and assess our, assess our success relationally as a man in our character, right? And we tie it to what it says here, which is be careful to stay seriously connected to this book. Seriously connected. Be careful to obey all the law. Don't turn from it to the right or the left. Don't make a decision, you know, and leave it there and then walk into a decision. Take it with you. Don't turn to the right or to the left, right? Is this your GPS? Make this your GPS. Let this be your guide. Let this be your direction. Let this book tell you what to do and where to go. And the Bible says you'll be prosperous and successful. I know guys that have a ton of money but they're poor. They're truly poor. They're poor in God. They're poor in love. They're poor in relationship. They're poor in influence. They abuse their influence. The things God gives them, they don't steward and manage well. And they become destroyers. You know, they're not prosperous. It's not about the money. It's not about what the car you drive. It's not about, you know, what you're able to do or the office that you sit in. At the end of your life, what's important 
is your influence for God on earth and people. Amen? Amen. Trust me, I do funerals. There's no one talking about their second home wherever. All right? They're not going, you know, Kenny owned a really great car and, you know, and, you know, he had his investments, at, you know, here, here, and here. And now, am I saying that you shouldn't do that or is that that's bad? No. I'm just saying that's not what people are going to talk about. Why? Because those things aren't eternal. Right? Self-sufficiency limits my ability and my influence as a man. Next, self-sufficiency invites calamity. Here, oh, here we go. I mean, if you don't listen to any part of this message, listen to this one because you don't like pain and neither do I. No one says, all right, I'm going to listen to myself and I'm going to get, I'm going to experience a lot of pain. All right, look at what it says here in Proverbs 16, 18. Very famous verse. It should be on, you should memorize Proverbs 16, 18. Let's read it with energy together. Ready? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. You see, when you act self-sufficiently, when you make yourself God, when you think you know it all, right? And you're like, okay, God, I know better. Or, okay, God, I know my needs better. And you act pridefully and self-sufficiently. Say, hello, destruction. And I should start asking for more up here. Uh, no, but you can just go because it's just a recipe for disaster, right? In Job 24, Job is, is thinking through the pain that he's in because, you know, calamity befalls the righteous and the wicked, right? And here's a guy who didn't do anything wrong, but he's going through a time of pressure and difficulty and tribulation. And he says this, but God drags away the mighty by his power Though they become established, they have no assurance of life. He may let them rest in a feeling of security, but his eyes are on their ways. For a little while, while they are exalted and then they are gone, they are brought low and gathered up like all others. They are cut off like heads of grain. Wow. See, there was Nebuchadnezzar, our story to start the story, the guy who had everything. And then God had to put him in his place because he's not God. Once you start acting like God, acting self-sufficiently, out of love, he will allow things to come into your life. He will allow consequences to befall you just to remind you, hey, you know what the source of all this was? Your pride and your self-sufficiency. Let's get it straight. And the good news about Nebuchadnezzar is that he did get it straight after the seven years passed. And it says, and Nebuchadnezzar says, and then my sanity was restored and I looked up and I acknowledged the God of heaven. So self-sufficiency invites calamity. Lastly, and this is probably the most important point of today's message, is self-sufficiency destroys intimacy with God. Self-sufficiency destroys intimacy with God. Let me ask you a question. When someone says to you, hey, you know what? I don't need you. Do you feel close to that person? Yes or no? Absolutely not. When someone goes, hey, you know what? I don't need you. Do you feel close to that person? I wouldn't feel close to you, right? And so self-sufficiency, especially when Jesus says, hey, I'm the vine and you're the branch and apart from me, you can do nothing. And I loved you and I proved I loved you by dying for you and you can depend on me and my commitment to you looks like me on that cross and you can trust me when I say Stay connected to me. Depend on me. All right? And then we say, I don't need you. 
I think that kills a little intimacy. Would it, if it does so on a human level, certainly it does so with God. And the Bible talks about how self-sufficiency and pride stirs a response from God. Um, in James chapter 4, it says, If all you want is your own way, flirting with the world every chance you get, you end up, what? Enemies of God and His way. And do you suppose that God doesn't care? The proverb has it that he's a fiercely jealous lover. Let's finish it together. And what he gives in love is far better than anything else you'll find. It's common knowledge that God goes against the willful proud, but gives grace to the willing humble. Wow. Willful proud versus the willing humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And even when he does that, that's love too. Because you're making yourself little g, God with a big G, and there's only one, God with a big G. That's the true God. And so when we look at this, you know, where our best life is, when we look at pride versus humility and self-sufficiency and God dependency, and how when we're self-sufficient, it's idolatry. It makes us immature. It kills humility. It limits my ability. It invites calamity, and it destroys intimacy with my maker. You know what a wise person would do? They would stop being self-sufficient, and they would start being God-dependent. And that's the response. You say, well, okay, Jesus made the warning, apart from me you can do nothing. What's my response? Well, we find it in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. It tells us exactly what to do today, this moment. Let's read it together. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be sober of spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You see, the world, Jesus said, at least he was honest, he said, in this world, you'll have tribulation. But take courage, I've overcome the world. So you're going to experience pressure. And in the pressure, you're going to be tempted to be self-sufficient because you want to self-preserve and self-protect, right? And so in this passage, it says, all right, there's going to be pressure. But in that pressure, humble yourself under God's mighty hand, be sober of spirit, be on the alert, because in that pressure, there's another person who's very interested in you being self-sufficient in that pressure. And it's the devil. And in the Bible, it says, you got to resist that. You see, Behind pride, man's pride, is the devil, and he's encouraging your pride. Why? Because that's who he is. When he was in charge of worship in heaven, he said, I want that spot. I want to be like the Most High. He saw God getting all this glory, and he said, you know what? I want that. And then he decides on his own to try to replace God right? And he gets kicked out of heaven. So now he's out of that job 
and he's trying to influence what God loves, you. And what's he trying to get you to do? Want to be God. Just like he wanted to be God. And so I find it interesting in this context where, you know, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Satan would say, apart from Jesus, you can do everything. Everything you want. No controls, no limits, no lanes to run in, no rules, no religion, you know, no goofiness. You don't have to like defend, you know, God. You can just do what you want to do. See the spiritual battle? How Satan is so invested in our self-sufficiency. So we're going to put down our pens and we're going to pray right now. We're going to put them down and we're going to have a moment before God and we're going we're to take what God says and Jesus' warning and we're going to reply to it just from our own hearts. Jesus, you said that you're the vine and we're the branch. That's you and that's us. And you told us, Jesus, that apart from you, we can do nothing. Lord, we're going to confess right now, every one of us, for all the times that we're acting independently from you. We think we know the answer. We think we know what to do. We think we know what's best. And we kick you off the team. We make ourselves God. And we become immature. And we exchange willing humility with willful pride. We limit ourselves. We invite disaster. But worst of all, Jesus... We're telling you in our self-sufficiency that we just don't need you. And then in love, you'll put us in a situation that reminds us we're not you. And so, Lord, instead of inviting calamity, we want to come before you humbly, as the Scripture says. And so we humble ourselves right now. I humble myself before you under your mighty hand. You're the potter. I'm the clay, you're the shepherd, and I'm the sheep. You're the vine, I'm the branch. Jesus, you're my creator, and I'm the created, and I exalt you. And Lord, whatever pressure that's coming into my life right now that would cause me to act pridefully in self-sufficiency, Lord, I give that pressure to you. You asked for it. You said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Jesus, thank you that you're willing to take the pressure that would move me to self-sufficiency. Thank you that you care for me. And Father, in Jesus' name, I raise a shield of faith over every man in this room and every man listening. I pray that you would extinguish the flaming lies and missiles of the enemy that's encouraging men to be self-sufficient and not to depend on you to act like they are the vine and they're the shepherd and they're the potter. Lord, I ask that you extinguish all lies that encourage self-sufficiency. We rebuke the devil in Jesus' name. I'm thankful, God, that this morning every man listening to my voice is in Christ and the blood of Christ was shed for him and the blood of Christ covers him and we reject his lies and we choose to be the branch and be the clay and be the sheep knowing that that keeps us close to you and brings us our best life. In Christ's name we pray and God's men said. We had some very notable members of the fire department step up and say, I was suicidal. 
another guy said, I was struggling with post-traumatic stress. And all of a sudden we started talking about it. By not talking, we were killing ourselves. But by simply talking, which for a guy is so hard to, to open up and just really share what's on your heart and your mind because you think you're the only one struggling with it. And, and in reality, we had, well, all of us were struggling with it.